and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. And my guest today is V. Rosen, Professorial Lecturer in Law and Visiting Scholar at the George Washington University School of Law. We will be discussing his paper, An Empirical Study of 225 Years of Copyright Registration, which he co-authored with the economist Richard Swin. So uh, welcome, V. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Great. So um, I got to say, I, I reread your paper last night. I really enjoyed reading it. And there's just so much data and information that you packed in there that I'm really looking forward to digging a little bit deeper into what you found and your observations on that data, especially through the kind of econometric lens that your co-author brought to the paper. But I wanted to start by providing a little bit of groundwork for for our listeners. So, so what is copyright registration anyway, and why does it matter? Yeah, so America is kind of unique these days in having a system for copyright registration. Um, most countries have moved over to a completely model under a burn system where you have copyright for when you create it and there's no further formalities or interaction really. But we've kept elements of registration system intact that we've had from the beginning where essentially in order to get the full protection of copyright laws, you have to file a, a registration with the U.S. Copyright Office coupled with payment of a fee and deposit of two copies. Okay, so you, you explain in the paper the sort of history of copyright registration in the United States and how the process and the kind of the consequences of registration have changed over time. And I think that's actually important to understanding some of the observations that you make. So I was wondering if you could kind of give us a, a potted version, as it were, of the history of copyright registration uh, in the United States. You know, it's always my favorite thing when someone asks me that. Um, so <laughs> copyright registration, as I said, start really starts from the beginning of the constitutional era. There actually were state systems for copyright as well under Articles of Confederation, which had a few, a few registrations. But con- um, copyright is included in the Constitution, and the very first Congress, they set up the Copyright Act. And this Copyright Act, which is a copy of the British Act passed about 80 years earlier, but largely a copy anyway. Um, it's just a system where in order to get registration of your copyright, you file a registration with a clerk of a local district court. You publish notice in a, lo- in a local newspaper for four weeks, and you send two copies of your books to a secretary of state in Washington, D.C. And I say books because at the time, statutes said only books, maps, or charts were the only works that were covered. And you now, that would be liberalized, and at the same time, even before the statute was liberalized, you see the inclusion of works that didn't strictly fit. Like prints were added to the statute in 1802, and you have courts holding that a single sheet is a book as well pretty early. Mm. So in 1831, oh, and the initial term of protection under the 1790 Act was 14 years of a 14-year renewal, where basically after 14 years, you would file a notice with a clerk of district court to get an extension for its further 14 years. In 1831, um, once again, for urging of Noah Webster, the publisher of a dictionary who also had urged a passage of 1790 Act, you see the passage of a first major revision of a copyright law 
Um, this change would turn to 28 years plus a 14-year renewal. Um, no coincidence, Webster's book was about to come out of copyright. Um, and that also liberalizes provisions a bit. It adds music to protection of copyright, even though music had de facto been protected as a book before that. And there's also some changes that made it easier to do notice. Um, the whole idea of copyright notice, the putting copyright symbol on the book, wasn't in the very first act in 1790, but it was added in 1802. 1831, they got rid of the original form of notice where you publish it in the newspaper and instead said that, that all you needed was to put that copyright symbol on it, coupled with, you know, well, the form changed a little bit for what you put on, but essentially put a copyright symbol of your name mm. on it for, for protection. Um, although you actually had to file newspaper notice for renewal until 1909, which huh. is one of those funny little anachronisms. Um, I see, there's some very anecdotal studies that show that almost no one filed newspaper notice at any point, which is part of why they got rid of it. Mm. So, 1831, things the century moves along. Um, they amend the Copyright Act by adding additional media to it, most notably photographs, 1865, one of Abraham Lincoln's last, last legislative acts. Um, oh. There's a revision of a law in 1870 to, and it's a full revision. 1870, they add trademarks to federal law and do a revision of patents and, and copyrights in the same time, the only time they've revised all three in one go. Hmm. But the actual result is not that different. 1870, the, the big change is that a copyright registration is moved from the various local federal courts to the Library of Congress. There's some shifting around where deposit goes. The Library of Congress began getting deposits for a few years already. But in 1870, Congress said no. Library of Congress handled everything regarding copyright. Local federal courts are, are you know, completely removed from the process, unless for litigation, of course. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened in 1870. Um, things keep moving. Um, up to this, only Americans were allowed to register for copyrights until 1891, when a law was passed allowing foreigners to register for copyright, subject to a ton of caveats that are beyond the scope of this, but mm-hmm. it was a pretty limited act in 1891, slowly so, so liberalized over time. And then, so keep moving forward, 1909, was a full revision of copyright laws, bringing us large, in many ways, to modern form, and the 1909 Act is still in effect for many works. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't really change the process of registration so much. It did double the fee from 50 cents to a dollar, which is a first change since 1831 when, when it was lowered from 60 cents to 50 cents. Huh. Um, although if you actually look, the change from 60 cents to 50 cents is almost, almost perfectly matches the currency deflation over that period. <laughs> so it's one of those sort of, I, I had no idea about that, but if you actually follow it, apparently the currency deflated about 20% huh. over those 40 years. It's um, about the whole fascinating other story that I knew nothing about until I until I, I researched this. Yeah. That until we went to paper money, there really was almost no inflation. Huh. But that's that's a really big other, really big other topic. Yeah. Um. And then over the 20th century, we essentially kept the 1909 Act for a long time, even though we started trying to revise it almost from the beginning. And 1909 Act was a little different than the acts before that. You actually filed registration before you published. Whereas 1909 Act said, no, you publish with a copyright notice and then you file registration and deposit your copies. Okay. And so that was a law, yeah. 20th century. The fee doubled a few times. It doubled 1928, 1947, I believe. 
and it kept going up over the 20th century and published a full revision in 1976, effective 1978. And that revision is our current law, which says you get copyright on a work as soon as it's fixed in casual medium, you know, whenever you write something down or otherwise put it to paper, mm-hmm. proverbially, not, not necessarily literally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but if you want to register, then you can get certain benefits like statutory damages, which is damages of up to $150,000, okay. depending on the type of infringement, regardless of actual damages. And that's largely the system we have, um, more or less, with a few further tweaks happening um, over the past 40 years as well. Okay, so that was a remarkably efficient um, discussion of a complicated and convoluted history. I, I, I wanted to ask you to just clarify one thing for our kind of non-copyright audience, and that is the historical relationship between copyright registration and copyright ownership. Sure. So, yeah, so in the in 1790, for certainly, and up until 1909, if you, well, there were two types of copyright. There's what's called common law copyright, which is protection on published works. And so a classic example of common law copyright is if you have a diary um, and someone takes it and publishes it, then they have violated common law copyright because it's an unpublished work. This is no longer good law, just so we're clear. Mm-hmm. Um, now, another example of common law copyright is if you have an unpublished manuscript, you can transfer the common law copyright for yourself from the author to the publisher in return for payment. Mm-hmm. And then, then the publisher can, can file registration. And then, then upon publication or upon registration, then you get a statutory copyright, which is a copyright under, the, under federal laws. Statutory copyright gets you um, additional remedies. It's, it's a more powerful vehicle, probably. Um, it doesn't last forever, unlike common law copyright. But mm-hmm. if you want to publish, the, the whole, the old-fashioned rule of this is that publication destroyed common law copyright. Okay. So that in, if you want to keep your keep your copyright after you published, you had to get a statutory copyright. Okay. And the only way to do that was to register until 1909. Okay. 1909, they changed the law to say if you publish it with copyright notice on it, then you own it. And that's still the law today. It's been further liberalized to say that, you know, you don't even have to have a copyright notice on it, strictly speaking, although there's benefits to that too. Okay. Okay. So copyright ownership then has, over the course of the 225-year history you chart, liberalized significantly. It's, it's a lot easier to get a copyright today. Uh, I mean, really, you don't have to do much of anything, do you? Nowadays you have to nowadays you have to literally nothing to get a copyright. If you create something but you own a copyright in it, subject to various caveats about what copyright law can protect. But if you write a letter and a piece of paper, then you have copyright without any further action. Okay. Okay. That's in the law for a pass for verb yeah. 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 Okay. So so this is important, I think, because the rule of registration in copyright ownership affects the story that you're telling. Um, but one thing that I th- I th- I'd really like to make clear for listeners is just the scope of the project that you actually engaged in. Because here, you know, you're dealing with 225 years of data, but it's not just the ear-crunching data. It's that the the information that you are working with is is 
not as readily available, shall we say, as one might wish it to be, especially for data prior to the 1976 Act. And I was wondering if you could kind of give listeners a sense of, you know, why that is and what you did to collect the actual information that forms the core of the paper. Yeah, well, well, that's my pleasure. This was really a multi-part project, and it really started. So um, Professor um, Robert Brownice did a study, I believe uh, he joined with Dutton Oliar after that to publish it, um, on on the sort of empirics of copyright from 1977 to the present. And it was the 78th to the present, I suppose. And... I had sort of said, well, what I should do a sequel to that. I should get, I should get a data on copyright before, 1970, before 1978. And the issue there is there is no electronic catalog of copyright from before that. Everything is on paper and we're, scan, and we're scanned of a lot of the paper. Those scans haven't been converted to, to machine-readable anything. So you have to rely on tabulations that were made at the time. So there was something called the Catalog of Copyright Entries, and it was – first published in 1891, and it was actually originally intended as a tool to prevent, unlaw- prevent unlawful, unlaw- unlawful importation of foreign printed books that violated what's called the Manufacturing Clause of 1891 Copyright Act, which said that to get protection in America, a foreign publisher had to nonetheless have a work printed in America. So foreign printed books in English could not be imported and they'd lose copyright if they were. And so I said, okay, these have... Starting in 1909, we have, we have statistical tables, actually 1903, we have statistical tables that I can use to get much more granular detail about copy, what's being copyrighted, retro copyright in that era. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that was the first project I did, to take all of these annual statistical tables and turning it, in, and turning it into, a, into a spreadsheet effectively. And I was helped substantially by the fact that UPenn had actually made a website where they had made these to HTML of 1950, 1977. And I just had to use a, a uh, web scraper to turn into Excel. And then I um, had a couple of other techniques to get them into Excel from there. And for some of these years, this is over 200 categories per year of copyright, mm-hmm. of copyright registration. Then before that, the annual reports of register of copyrights have pretty good data. I was able to use that um, sort of connecting to the catalog covered um, entries data to take the data back to 1870. Okay. But, um, the only year that's missing is 1897 because they moved to library building and it was apparently complete chaos. <laughs> Before that is when things get really difficult because until 1870, there was no one place for copyright registrations. Every individual U.S. district court is on copyright registrations. And up until this paper, no one has really known how it broke down. Um, the Library of Congress made an estimate that there were 150,000 registrations over this entire period, over the entire country. And if you look at the annual reports of the U.S. Copyright Office going back to at least the 70s, they, that's, that's the number they give for how many there have been for that whole period. And they make clear it's an estimate. Mm-hmm. However, there is a microfilm of all the pages of copyright. Well, not all. That's a whole other story <laughs> of copyright entries. So, the vast majority of them, anyway. Yeah. Um, all, all, all pages of copyright entries for um, 1790 to 1870. And this, the finding aid for microfilm does list how many pages there were 
for jurisdiction and year. And so we were able to take that and really reverse engineer how, roughly how many there were by jurisdiction and year. And then once we, we actually did figure out how many per year per jurisdiction and then summed each, then summed all the jurisdictions for, for, for each year. Yeah. Um, and it helped a lot, but even though there's a lot of different jurisdictions, most of them had very few copyright registrations. Hmm. Um, there were about 140,000 and change, of which 60, over 60,000 were from New York, 30,000 were from Boston, and 25,000 were from Pennsylvania. Hmm. If you throw in another 5,000 from Ohio, there's really a couple hundred from each other state, really. Wow. And so it ended up being pretty doable to more or less figure out how many there were per year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what we did. And we were able to walk the number of registrations per year all the way back to 1790. Wow. So yeah. the 225 is a little, little bit of a misnomer because we only have a number for the total per year for 1790 to 2015. Mm-hmm. And it gets more granular as the year, and it gets more granular as the years go forward. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, and... Just briefly, I mean, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about your observations about the kind of the first century, as it were, of copyright registration is just how regional the creation of works of authorship was as a sort of industry, as it were. I mean, so few places with copyright registrations. Yeah, and I'm not sure how much of that was custom versus work creation. Um, in many cases, you had like New York and Boston and Philadelphia were all cities that had large publishing industries, even if the author didn't live there. Right. And typically, the publisher, would, it, the registration would be filed either by the author or proprietor, which would be the publisher. Mm-hmm. And I think in most cases, the author sold the rights to a publisher and a publisher registered. So it might not actually not indicate, it might, not indicating they're quite as regional as they look from those numbers, mm-hmm. but it certainly does indicate that there was a serious concentration of printing and publishing in those cities. Um, there is also a great note. Um, this is a little slide. The, the Confederate States had their own copyright system. In 1863, uh-huh. the um, uh, Secretary of State of Confederacy um, sent a message to all of the district court clerks in Confederacy saying, tell me how many copyrights you've had. And I think the clerk from South Carolina said, we have very few. The custom here is not to bother. <laughs> and who, <laughs> I mean, that's very difficult to prove. Yeah. But it's yeah. an interesting anecdote. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's, I got to say, I mean, the paper is, incredibly rich with kind of really granular observations about kind of what happened historically, I think beyond the scope of what we can really address in a podcast. So, you know, nota bene, people should read the paper. Really, it's totally worth it. And I mean, the incredible amount of information in there. But there were a couple of really interesting and kind of counterintuitive, or maybe just kind of counter-conventional wisdom observations that you made. And I was wondering if you could kind of lay out what the perspective on kind of the incentives behind copyright registration and copyright ownership was prior to your paper and sort of the, and then kind of 
just highlight a few of the the findings that you made that sort of were are, are kind of added a new perspective on or kind of shift some of those conventional wisdom attributes. Yeah. I think the conventional wisdom, even though I should say there's a Posner article by uh, Posner and Landis called Indefinitely Renewable Copyright that does make some of the same findings we do, although with data that doesn't go back as far or have as much detail. But the conventional wisdom was, for instance, that copyright registration fees have minimal impact on on copyright registration depending on what they were. And what we found was, in fact, registration fees are, are correlated to copyright registrations, and often quite dramatically. You'll see periods where they mentioned that there was a, they would double the fee every 20 years or so in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And each time they do it, the cop, you, you can see the copyright registration, the line of registrations per capita is going up, and then the fee is doubled, and they go back down. <laughs> and then they work their way back up and go back down. Yeah. Or another way, in the 1860s, you can see registrations rising slowly through about the middle of the Civil War. And then, I mean, the Confederacy had hyperinflation, but even the Union states um, had serious inflation compared to anything they'd had before. And the, as, as the copper registration fee went to be about half what it was, the number of copper registration just shoots up. Mm. It's really quite dramatic if you look at the graph, and it's, and we show statistically that there is a correlation between fees and registrations, which people might not have assumed, but does in fact exist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And other thing we found, yeah. Yeah, and I was going to say, I mean, it was really quite surprising to me just how salient the registration appear, fee appeared to be to marginal copyright registration applicants. I mean, you know, I mean, they were, the response that you demonstrate is like convincing and really dramatic. And there's this kind of dance between the registration fee and inflation that was just fascinating. Well, and I think, I think you really see this very strongly in the late 19th century when um, there was a whole dance about product labels where Congress passed a law to require them to pay a higher fee and you keep seeing people try to pay a 50 cent copyright fee instead of a $3 trademark fee mm-hmm. or ah. cert- or in some cases actually a 50 cent trademark fee, as fo- oh, sorry, a 50 cent copyright fee as well to a, to a $25 patent fee, uh-huh. which is, and you, you do see this in literature at, at the time. I think, if this behavior continued, although perhaps perhaps there was less jockeying between patents and copyrights as these lines got a little more clearly drawn, mm-hmm. but um, certainly the you know the fees mattered. You know, even if it was only fifty cents in some cases, that you know the margins might be low. You know, I mean, you'd have some books that and they'll be copyrighted no matter what. You probably have a lot more where having to go through the paperwork and the fee. It just wasn't worth it if a fee was a dollar versus 50 cents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one one thing that I thought was really interesting as well, and that might be like, you know, at least in the copyright scholarship community anyway, the more kind of controversial observation, as it were, were is some of the data and some of the findings that you made about the salience of copyright term to copyright registration. I wonder if you could like dig a little bit into what you found on that front. 
Yeah, so what we found is that no, copyright registration does not necessarily mean work creation. There's, I believe there's a correlation, and we have some data on that, but it's difficult to show because there's a lot of variability among types of works, and it's hard to map it to number of works being created. But it, what it does show at a minimum is that there is a statistically significant effect, actually even stronger than fee, to a longer term. And I was really excited because I, I really thought the 1831 Act would show that the reduction in formalities was significant. And I was a little surprised to learn that if you disaggregate the term extension from the Act, there was no other significance to the change. But the term <laughs> extension from, yeah, which I, I thought, because, you know, publishing newspaper notice sounds like an incredible pain in the neck. Yeah, really. Um, seriously. You know, but it does seem that that didn't, that, because, you know, you can, if you disaggregate, if you look at the effective term extension over time, mm-hmm. um, if you take that out of the equation, 1831 is significant. But if you, t- but if you include the um, effective term extension over time, the 1831 act ceases being significant, uh, ce- ceases having a, a significant effect on number of registrations. Um, the only one that does have a significant effect, even if you take away the effect, is 1909. Mm. And something major happened in 1909. That one sort of raises more questions than answers. Mm. But aside, 1909 was the only year that is significant, really, if you take away the other effects mm-hmm. of um, term and fee. Interesting. Um, and I guess it's significant, but I mean, I, I think there was sort of a dogma that, you know, the. If you no one cares about copyright past twenty five years or something or past or past twenty years or you know what have you, but it does seem that people did care enough to to be more likely to register for a longer term, and that effect seems to peter out at about sixty seven years of total mm-hmm. term mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's and it's sort of an s curve yeah yeah when if I read the paper correctly you you used renewal term applications as a way of getting at some of those same questions about the kind of long-term salience of, of copyright uh, registration. Am, am I understanding that correctly? So I actually tried to, and the results were underwhelming, actually. I was a little surprised at that, that in the end, the registrations, the number of registrations compared to term was much more, and, we, and so for term, we included the total possible term not 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 the initial term, which is how we can have a term longer than twenty eight years for the calculations. Um, but if you just look at renewal filings, they don't tell you all that much, really, which kind of surprised me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the trouble is the, the renewal, the extensions of renewal term versus one in nineteen oh nine, which is very early. And nineteen oh nine, the first year we have statistics on renewal filings. Unfortunately, we're you'd have to reverse engineer the number of filings of registrations and, and renewals from scratch to get before that. But so you have a section of renewal terms then, and then you have this really we- weird year by year, uh, small extensions, 1962 to 1977, where they extended renewals while working on a new law. And I think that, I think that just works chaos on the statistics because it doesn't really, it makes it very hard to see to have changes to have real changes in the law over time. So we didn't we, we have a numbers of renewals per year, I think they're interesting, but there's not a lot of of significance in the analysis. 
mm-hmm. for those changes. Okay. The significance is all in, is just registrations. Huh. So maybe- Which surprised me because we've all been... We've all been looking at those numbers for so long, and they've been analyzed in repeated papers. And very interesting to know, but I don't actually don't think there's a ton there in terms of significance. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I wonder if what it suggests is that you know the uncertainty of the future value of the work at the time of registration is no longer there at the time of renewal, and really no one's going to bother renewing works that don't have any economic value, or at least fewer people would would bother. I think that's true. It's also, one thing I did see is there's a ton of heterogeneity in renewal rates if you look at different types of works. And this has been observed before, but mm. we're, we're actually starting to see more studies, and these really haven't been mined, that do a deep dive into the book category, where renewal rate has been assumed to be about 10%. But the problem with the book category is that it also includes all kinds of, of printed ephemera that no one would care about renewing. And but recent, there's two recent studies. Hathi Trust did an internal study, and there's a second one as well that show renewal rate for book for actual books is three to four, is thirty to fifty percent, huh. which is much much higher than has previously been observed. And that's not, that's not mine. That's um, two uh, t- two other uh, studies from the past year or two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and so th- I do think there's sort of a shift in consensus there. Yeah, right. Right. Well, one thing I noticed that I thought was interesting in the study, which um, kind of peak, you know, peak my interest as it were was how different categories of works of authorship broke down in terms of whether the renewal was by the publisher or by the author. That was a really cool find, and that actually was something. So I served as the Abraham Kamenstein Scholar in Residence at the U.S. Copyright Office for 2015, 2016, and I was looking at an old file, and I happened to find this internal study the Copyright Office had done, and it would be incredible. I guess you could do it from outside the Copyright Office, but it would be a real pain in the neck. But they went ahead and did it, and they showed that for everything but periodicals, I believe, it was almost entirely being filed by the heirs of the creator. And books, and even books, I think 12% were being renewed by the publisher and suddenly 88% would be renewed by the author and um, or a family. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I, I just was, that it really, I mean, it, 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 it says something about how and why copyright ownership is salient at different points in the kind of lifespan of a work that really got me thinking that like, that's an angle to dig deeper into. Well, that's always how renewal and now termination are really um, sort of justified, saying, hey, this is about giving the author who may have made a bad deal a second bite of the apple. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, where, where they're no longer alive, giving their family a chance to make up for, to, um, to make up for it. Mm-hmm. And so it was really a powerful tool, and I think that's why they were usually being followed by families and or, or the author themselves and not by the publisher, um, even though there were a number of court decisions that allowed the publisher to file a renewal, unlike a termination where they really couldn't. Well, I guess yeah. wouldn't, yeah. want, wouldn't want to terminate for copyright. <laughs> yeah. Well, Zvi, this, is, this has been a great conversation. I was wondering if you could kind of sum it up with what you think kind of the, the key takeaways from, from your study are just so people kind of have a big picture sense of you know what you found 
and better understand why they should read your paper? Yeah, well, so this paper is an attempt to say, okay, we've assembled this amazing data set. What does it tell us about copyright? And when we're talking about copyright, we're not just talking about registrations for copyright, but also what's really going on on my business and various art forms, including literature, music, et cetera. And we found a couple of things that are interesting, which is that the registrations for copyright do correlate really nicely with the term up to a certain point. Um, getting rid of burdensome regulations does help, and when formalities become optional, they're no longer followed, but the biggest impact on the number of works being registered for copyright is, generally speaking, the length of a possible term and the fee you have to pay. Hmm. That's sort of the biggest takeaway. And the other story, I think, is just one of seeing how the per capita registrations in America where are, you know, if you look at registration per million people, they're in the single, single or double digits in the very beginning in American history. And it's well over a thousand per cap, per, I think, hundred thousand or million once you get to a 20th century, once you get to late 19th century and beyond. And you really see America, the story kind of is that America wasn't creating in the early part of the Republic and it really bloomed in the latter part of the 19th century and then the 20th century. And I think you you can only really see this in terms of in terms of the numbers, sort of America coming alive as a, as a producer of art. And I think that's really the open takeaway of this, mm. is really understanding how how it came to be and the structure of that. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, thanks so much, V. It's been a great pleasure talking with you about this fantastic paper, and I'm so glad we can we can share this conversation with people. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Maybe.